Well, greetings from Surrey Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, it is a blessing to be with you all today. Uh, we have been praying for you as you've been going through some dark providences lately, and uh, it's a blessing to be able to uh, minister the word to you this morning. Uh, let's go to our God for a time of prayer once again. Let us, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you are the sovereign Lord over all things, and we are thankful that your promises remain true, even in the face of dark providences that your people endure. And so even as we go through sorrow and sadness and sickness, we pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes upon Christ, help us to fix our eyes upon your promises, help us to know that you are with us. Though we die, though we put off this earthly body, we have a body a heavenly tent that is made without hands. And we're thankful that even as we are away from the body and present with the Lord, uh, we have great comfort knowing that we are in paradise. And so we pray that you'd help us to be comforted by this, that as we deal with death, that you are the Lord over all things and that we have defeated death in Christ Jesus. And we pray you'd help us and encourage us as we wander this world. We know that this world is not our home. We know that we are pilgrims in the land. And we know that we do long for heaven. We are thankful for the glimpse and foretaste that your Lord's day is. Even though we do not see you, we love you, but we long to see you by sight uh, in the new heavens and new earth. And so thank you for the hope that we have, even as we wander. And thank you for that promise that you dwell with us and we will dwell with you forever. Thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are thankful that he is that pledge in heaven. We are thankful the spirit has been poured out and that you do dwell with us now. You dwell with us as your church. You dwell each and every one of your people with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we do long for that time where we shall dwell with you forever. And so we pray that you would remind us of that today. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your promises. And we pray that you would be pleased to bless the preaching and the teaching as it goes forth. Give us illumination from on high to better understand what your word says. And please provide comfort and encouragement for your people today. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when it comes to passages of comfort, you were probably asking yourself, why is Pastor Mike teaching on Genesis chapter 23? Usually we think of passages like Revelation 21, the new heavens and new earth, or we think of 1 Corinthians 15, which I think Pastor or Brother Porter preached on when he was here, or Philippians 1, perhaps, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But Genesis 23 and the death of Sarah probably doesn't come to mind. But I remember preaching on this years ago, and I found it very comforting. Even sometimes the most obscure passages can be very comforting for the people of God. Because death is something that we still struggle with. And it's something that the patriarchs had to deal with as well. They received the promises of God. Uh, Abraham in him, the families of the earth would be blessed. But we now come to the death of the matriarch. We come to the death of Sarah and eventually we do see the death of Abraham as well. So it is something that God's people still have to deal with in this world. And this comes after the climax of the story of Abraham. We see that Abraham is ready and willing to offer up his son Isaac. And God then provides that substitute. And God reaffirms that promise to Abraham when he says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But then we come to Genesis 23, and we come to deal with death in the life of the patriarchs as we begin to transition from Abraham and then to Isaac, the promised son, the promised seed who came from 
Sarah. And remember the whole story with Abraham centers around seed and land. God promised to give Abraham seed and God also promised to give him land. Well, we've seen the seed, we've seen the son, but what of the land? Abraham has wandered throughout this land, even though God said to him, I will give it to your descendants, yet nonetheless, Abraham still wandered. Well, before Abraham passes, and it is the occasion of Sarah's death, that leads to Abraham getting some sort of down payment in the land. And it is in the wake of Sarah's death that God provides this place, provides this plot of land as a down payment of what God will do for the people of Israel later on in their history. But the problem is very clear in this chapter. The problem is the death of God's people. As much as we confess and believe 1 Corinthians 15, the reality is death does have some sting still, doesn't it? We, deal, we will likely die. We will watch loved ones pass. And it is also the same with Abraham as well. And so is there some comfort for the people of God in the wake of death? Is there some comfort for the people of God as we have to deal with the curse of the fall? And so is there a place of comfort we can go? And that's what we see here, I think, in Genesis 23. God shows forth his promises to Abraham. God affirms his promises to Abraham. He does so by way of providence as he secures property in the promised land for Abraham. So it's a promise in the midst of death. It's a securing of property that the people of God, that the patriarchs might be remembered in the land as the patriarchs pass away. And so we'll look at this securing of land under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see when God's people pass, uh, chapter 22, verse 20, to chapter 23, verse 2. Then we'll see when God's people wander, verses 3 through 6 of chapter 23. And then we'll see when God's people dwell in verses 7 through 20 of chapter 3. So when God's people pass, when God's people wander, and then we'll see when God's people dwell. So let's first look at when God's people pass in verses uh, 20. Of chapter 22 to 23, verse 2. And notice we see the genealogy at the end of chapter 22. Sometimes it's hard to know where to put the genealogies, but I do think it goes with uh, the death of Sarah because it is a passing of the torch. Usually genealogies point forward, they point ahead to someone else, and in this case it has to do with Rebecca. And so, as was read, verse 20, it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, whose, I usually said Huz, so I'm thankful that he pronounced it properly uh, this morning, whose, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And then Bethuel begot Rebekah. Rebekah is now going to be that matriarch. Rebekah is going to be the one uh, who, who takes the mantle in, uh, in this way. And so we're looking ahead uh, for uh, the, the one who would come to be the wife of Isaac. And that sets the stage for the covenant romance in Genesis chapter 24, because God has promised that there's going to be descendants. But how is God going to bring that about? Well, he needs a wife for Abraham needs to find a wife for Isaac. So it's setting the stage for Rebekah when she's introduced further in Genesis 24. And these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, verse 23, Abraham's brother. And then there is the mention of the concubine in verse 24. 
His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba, Geham, Taash, and Ma'aka. Now, I'm always curious to know why these ones are mentioned here, because there's a lot of genealogies that uh, don't go, are not part of the promised seed. Well, I do think the genealogies are mentioned uh, uh, to highlight God's goodness. If God is good to non-believers, if God is kind to the non-covenant and non-promised seed, uh, how much more so will he be to those whom he has promised in Abraham while the families of the earth shall be blessed? Especially when I got to Genesis 36, and that's the genealogy of Esau. Uh, What do you do with that as you preach that? That's a difficult thing, but I do think it highlights God is good to the non-covenant people. How much more so is he good to the covenant uh, people? So God is providing... God has provided the son, the promised son in Isaac. Now God will provide that wife in Rebekah. But we still have to face the death of Sarah, which is what we see in verses 1 and 2. We see the death of a queen, so to speak. We see the death of the mother of Israel in verse 1. Notice we see her age. Sarah lived 120 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Her age is included probably to show her stature. In a lot of ways, she does pass as a queen. Uh, It is probably the case, at least some of the commentators note this, that uh, she is the only woman whose age is mentioned uh, in Genesis and perhaps even the whole Bible. So she does have some sort of status, doesn't she, as this one who passes. So it is a big deal when we see the passing of Sarah. And so she passes away. She lives to a ripe old age of 127 years. And these were the years of the life of Sarah. And then she passes. So Sarah died in Kirjath or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now places are important when it comes to Abraham, when it comes to God's goodness towards Abraham. If you remember, Hebron or Mamre is where Abraham dwelt in Genesis 13. We see the division uh, between Lot and Abraham. They could not share the land because they had too many, uh, too much, flo- too many flocks. They had too many animals. They could not share, and also with the Canaanites in the land as well. And so there was this division. Lot took and went towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, Abraham received the promised land, and he dwelt in Mamre. He dwelt in Hebron. He dwelt in that place for quite a long period of time. He dwelt in the promised land, more renting, but nonetheless, he still lived there for quite some time. So she dies in the promised land. She dies in this place where they were living. She dies in the place that God had shown to them, and Abraham goes and mourns for her. Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He loves his wife of many years. They have gone through it for many years. They've gone through many trials. And he had this deep love that he shared with her. And so it is appropriate for him to mourn. It's appropriate for him to lament. It's appropriate for him to grieve the loss of his wife. Now, theologically speaking, we know that Sarah is the mother of the promise. We see this in Isaiah chapter 51. We see this in Galatians chapter 4. She is the mother. She points ahead to the Jerusalem from above. However, humanly speaking, she doesn't receive the promise of land, does she? Humanly speaking, if you were reading Genesis for the first time, you might begin to ask the question, what of the promises of God? 
Sometimes God's people, even though we believe it, we confess it, we hold to it, sometimes we can have doubts when it comes to the promises of God. It's just the reality of this fallen, miserable world in which we live in. So if you were reading it for the first time, you might begin to ask those sorts of questions. Death seems to be in the way of the promises of God. But as the rest of the Bible unfolds, we see that God is the one who keeps his promises even in the wake and face of death. But that doesn't change the fact that God's people, God's covenant people, will still have to face and deal with death, and we still have to mourn in this fallen world. We are still subjected to death. We are still subjected to decay because of the fall of man. We still have to deal with sin and misery. Now, thankfully, we do not mourn without hope. We don't mourn like the pagans do. We have a great hope in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was resurrected from the dead. But that doesn't change the fact we're not always triumphant in the wake of death. It doesn't change the fact that we grief creeps up on us as we deal with the loss of loved ones. Davis says, Dale Ralph Davis says, So Abraham here reminds us that God's covenant people are not sticks and stones, impervious to grief and sadness. You may say, well, yes, but we face them with triumph and victory. Well, maybe often that is the case, but sometimes our losses are so sad, so distressing, so lonely that even as Christians, we can't feel much of the victorious element. God's people go through it. You guys are going through it. And I think of Adoniram Judson who was the first missionary to uh, American missionary to Asia. He was a particular Baptist. He initially started as a paedo-Baptist, but he became a particular Baptist on the way uh, to Burma as he read the scriptures. But of all the missionaries that I've read, I'm sure there's somebody else I have not read, but the guys that I have read, he seems to go through it. There's just a lot of sadness and dark circumstances that seem to come upon Adoniram Judson. He loses two wives in the mission field. He is thought to be an English spy, even though he's an American during the Anglo-Burmese War, and he's actually put in prison for two years, even though he's not English. And so he has to go through that. But there is a period in his life, about a six-month period, where he loses his son, he loses his wife, he loses his daughter, and his father. And he's in a foreign country. He is in a place that is not his home. And so grief overtakes him. He goes through this four-year period of great grief and sorrow and sadness. So much so that he does things that we probably would not approve of. He begins to get caught up in mysticism. And what he does is he goes into the jungle for two years. He digs a grave and sits there and thinks about all of the stages of death uh, during his grief period. It was a tiger-infested jungle. Thankfully, he had a friend who watched over him, even though Adoniram didn't know that. But the point is, grief overcame him, didn't it? Now, I don't think we should go dig a grave and ponder the, you know, the stages of death. But the point is, grief overcomes the people of God. And that is perfectly legitimate in this fallen world. We can grieve in this present evil age in which we live. Again, we don't grieve like the pagans do, but we still grieve and lament and mourn, especially in the face of death and the death of loved ones. Now, 
Adoniram Judson eventually snapped out of it, and he became a pioneer missionary when it comes to language training and cultural immersion, which are important things, but he did go through it. He did go through a very dark providence, and many other dark providences later in his life, but especially that period. God's people still have to deal with the death of loved ones, and so even when God's people pass, there is still comfort even in the face of mourning. So that's when God's people pass. Let's then look secondly at when God's people wander in verses 3 through 6. Notice Abraham has a good desire. Abraham has been wandering for us quite some time. He does sort of, as I said, kind of rent the land from Genesis 13 through 19 in Mamre. Uh, but for the most part, he is a wanderer. He doesn't actually own real estate. He actually doesn't have any sort of plot of land to call his own. He desires to have a place that he can, so he desires to have a place in which uh, he can bury his dead, but also to have some sort of plot of land in the promised land. And so he says in verse 3 Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. Perhaps they were Hittites, uh, but nonetheless they were Canaanites. We see that from Genesis 10 15. These are clearly the sons of Canaan. And he seems to have a good relationship. There's some good lessons about common grace here and common interactions between uh, Christians and non-believers here. He seems to have a good report among them. And so he wants to buy some sort of land. But he says, I am a foreigner, verse 4, and a visitor among you. He understands he is an alien. He understands he's a sojourner. He understands that he does not have a home. He understands that very thing, but he wants some sort of land. He wants some sort of place that he might bury his dead out of his sight. But not just to bury his dead, but also to secure that property in the land that God has promised him. So he goes to these uh, Hittites. He goes to the sons of Heth, these Canaanites, and he asks them for this, this land, this property for a burial. And the sons of Heth recognize who he is. Abraham has honor among the sons of Heth. Abraham has a good report with those that are outside. And what does he say? What do they say? Verse 5. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. They recognize Abraham's stature. Remember, God, even in the, in the, in the, fa- in the face of Abraham's um, uh, 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 unfaithfulness, we could say, and his lack of belief, God is still gracious to him. When he goes into Egypt and lies to Pharaoh, doesn't trust the promises, yet God gives him gold and silver as he comes up out of the land of Egypt. You see, God is very gracious and good to the people of God, even when we're not so smart. Even when we don't trust in God, nonetheless, God is very gracious to us. And so he has a lot. He's been given protection, certainly in Egypt. He's been given protection in Gerar. He's been given good things as he comes out of those places. Even in the battle in Genesis 14, which is World War I, according to Scripture, uh, as we see, that's when Lot is taken. That big, bad king, Keterlaomer, takes Lot. And Abraham goes and he rescues his nephew. And he has less of an army, but yet, nonetheless, he routes this big, bad king. God was with him. That's where Melchizedek then comes on the scene, right? And Abraham offers him a tithe uh, to recognize who the king is over the entire world. It is God Most High. 
And God Most High is for Abraham. God Most High is for the people of God. And we see this here, even in a a providential unfolding of this transaction that is taking place. Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. You bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Shows some common grace. Even pagans uh, can be civil even in the face of death. And so the sons of Heth say, please take whatever land you wish. Take whatever you please. Please take a land and hopefully you do not wander any more. But the reality is there's some good application for us in our day. You see, God's people still wander. I do love the history of Israel. I love, you know, Judges and Joshua and Samuel and Kings. I mean, that might be weird that I love them, but with all the bad that goes on in them. But nonetheless, you see God's goodness and patience and grace, but also God's judgment as well. But it's hard for us sometimes to relate to Israel as a theocracy. Certainly there is, you know, the the church is is the new Israel in Christ Jesus. But as we dwell in this world, we know that Washington, that Canada, that America, this is not our home. And so there is some good application with Abraham. Abraham's wandering. He does not have a home. That's why I like Ezra and Nehemiah and and Esther. I like the the exilic period because that is what we are. We are exiles in the land. This world is not our home. We are called a nomad for a reason. And so as we wander, the reality is we still have to deal with sin and misery of the fall. We know what we have. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but yet we still see death. Yet we still have sickness, yet we still have sorrow. We still have to deal with these things in this present age. And what that does for us is it reminds us of the glories of Christ and the glories that await us because of what Christ has done. John Webster talks about sanctification. He puts in this light. He says, I'm paraphrasing, but when it comes to our sanctification, the hardest thing is that we partake in part. We partake in part now. We've known that salvation. We know that we are children of God. We know the life-giving power that comes from that gospel. We know that we have a new heart. We know that we come to Zion every Lord's Day. But there's still sin. That's what makes it hard, doesn't it? That's what makes this life hard. We have and know what we have in Christ. We believe it to be true. But yet we still have sin and misery that we have to deal with as well. And certainly 1 Peter 2 is a clear uh, New Testament book that deals with us as exiles. He writes how they're exiles in the land. He talks about how we're sojourners in the land, especially in 1 Peter chapter 2. And again, these griefs remind us that this world is not our home and our dependence is upon God. Davis again says, you must never forget who you are, how fragile and rootless and utterly dependent on God And sitting loose to this age and all that it holds and offers, there is a certain and proper detachment that should mark us. Sometimes grief or loss or reversals can bring this mindset home with fresh force. This world is not our home. And even the patriarchs understood this. You can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. 
We see the Old Testament saints looking ahead to Christ, believing on the promises of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Again, the patriarchs actually don't receive the physical promised land, but they knew that that land, that that, that land would be given to their physical descendants. But they also knew, based upon Hebrews 11, that there was a far greater heavenly home that awaited them. And so it goes on to say, the writer goes on to say, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They have a city that is prepared for them. We have a city that is prepared for us. And he drives to the point where he says in Hebrews 12, talks about how we come to Zion. We come to Zion now, but we shall come to Zion in full when Christ comes again. Even though we wander, we can be reminded of where our home is and be reminded that we have a heavenly home that awaits us as we deal with this present evil age. So that's when God's people wander. Let's then look thirdly and finally about at when God's people dwell. Verses 7 through 20. Abraham wants a specific plot of land. And so we begin in verse 7. He says, Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, recognizing their goodness, recognizing the service that they offer, showing gratitude towards them. The prince bows to them. And verse 8, He spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me this cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. He wants this cave that Ephron possesses. And the reason he asked the sons of Heth to go ask Ephron is because he wants witnesses. That's important throughout the rest of this chapter. He wants to make sure this transaction is legal. He wants to make sure this transaction goes through. He doesn't want anything to be reneged. He doesn't want anything to, he wants to make sure there is a paper trail. So the sons of Heth are going to be witnesses and he wants this cave from Ephron uh, the Hittite. And so he requests this specific land. He wants a burial place, not Back in Ur, he wants a burial place in the promised land. He wants a burial place in the place that God has promised to him and to his descendants. And so he goes on, they go, the, the deal continues in verse 10. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. They gather at the gate, the place of legal proceedings. They are engaging in a legal financial transition and transaction uh, here. And so in the presence of the sons of Heth, and not just Ephron, again, they're witnesses, no bearing false witness. That's not a good thing. Bearing false witness isn't just not lying But if you bear false witness in a transaction or in a legal case that has 
huge ramifications. And so you must tell the truth, uh, especially when it comes to this legal deal here. And so Ephron, again, is very kind. He says, you take the cave. I will give it to you. You have it. Wonderful. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? But Abraham says something different in verses 12 and 13. Now, again, he bows down. He shows his gratitude. He shows his, uh, recognizes the gift that Ephron is offering. And verse 13, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land saying, if you will give it to me, please, I will give you money for the field. Abraham wants to buy it. He doesn't just want it to be a gift that is given. He wants to buy it. Take it from me and I will bury my dead. Uh, Take it from me and I will bury my dead there. The reason is he wants to own a possession. And he wants to make sure that all all the loose ends are tied up. He wants to make sure that the deed is irrevocable. And perhaps down the road, one of the descendants of Ephron might come back and say, yes, my father gave it to you, but I'm going to take it back. But Abraham wants to make sure everything is set in order. I want to pay you. I want to give you how much the land is worth. I want this promised piece of land in the promised land. And so Ephron agrees. Verse 14, a lot of ways he blows smoke, I think. There's a lot of back and forth, I think. You know how some people are? You're like, hey, I'm going to give it to you. Oh, no, you don't have to give it to me. Oh, yes, I really want to. Oh, how, am I, how about this? That's kind of what's going on here. And so we see Ephron say, verse 15, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. 400 shekels is probably a steep price because David brought the, bought the threshing floor for 50 shekels. And so 400 shekels is quite a large and steep price. And so Ephron is perfectly fine taking it and uh, taking this amount and wanting this amount. But Abraham obliges. Again, the, the, the land is, is priceless. The land is worth whatever uh, Ephron would have asked. And so verse 16, Abraham listens to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchant. So our merchants. So it's paid out. They weigh it out in the, in, the, in, in the presence of witnesses. This deed cannot be irrevocable. It is Abraham's plot of land in the promised land. And we see that it's kind of deed language. It's kind of uh, transaction language or kind of uh, uh, contractual language in verses 17 and 18. So the field, spelling out what he bought. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which is before Mamre, the field in the cave, which was in it, in all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. He now has a secured plot of land in the promised land. And we see it laid out very clearly. It's Ephron who gave it. It's Machpelah. It is Mamre. It is the field. It is the cave. It is the the, the borders surrounding it. It is what is given to Abraham. It's what Abraham has purchased with 400 shekels. And so he receives it, and he does what he intended to do with it, verses 19 and 20. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, 
in the cave of the field. And notice all the names mentioned, the places mentioned. In the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Where they dwelt, where they had been, uh, where they had uh, rented for a long period of time. Now they have a plot of land in that place that God has promised. And so the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. And this would be the place where the patriarchs are buried. Abraham is buried there. Isaac and Rebekah are buried there. Jacob and Leah are buried there. On the resurrection day, that would be a pretty good place to be. I guess uh, wherever you are when you're resurrected will be a wonderful thing. But there are just some places it would be wonderful to be. Uh, the cave of Machpelah would be one. You probably know about Bunhill Fields in England where all the nonconformists or some of the Puritans are buried. I had the privilege of going there several years ago before the pandemic with our eight-month-old. That was uh, a lot, but it was still a wonderful time. And, and people don't realize it's in a business district. If you haven't been there, people are just walking through it. And there's all these John Owen and John Bunyan and Thomas Goodwin, all these, all these wonderful men of the faith that are buried there. That would be a wonderful place to be as well. Because the reality is the point of the text, although it deals with death, the main point of the text is dwelling, isn't it? Where the people of God dwell. And where the people of God shall dwell forever. That is the emphasis that we see in this text. And what's interesting is we love Genesis 22 and we should. But if you're counting verses, Genesis 23 uh, is, uh, has a little bit less. But if you look at Genesis 22, 1 through 19, when he talks about the offering up of Isaac, technically uh, the burial section has more verses because it is also important as well. Abraham, the one who wandered for many, many, many years, relying on the promises of God, now has a plot of land in the promised land. And what God has done here is to affirm and confirm his promises. And did you notice something as the text was read and as we've gone through? Who is not mentioned? God. That doesn't mean that God is not operating, does it? It doesn't mean God is not caring for the people of God. We have the Genesis 12s and the 15s and the 17s and the 22 where God speaks to Abraham with that audible voice. But there's also the providence of God to affirm his promise. And that's what he does for Abraham here as he you know, heckles, as he negotiates, as he, oper- as he tries to get and figure out how he can buy this promised land. It's what God does for his people both in the extraordinary times, which is what we see in 15, 17, and 22, but more importantly for us in the ordinary times. God is with his people. God walks with his people. God guides his people. And God does dwell with his people. That is the comforting thing to remember, isn't it? If we are in Christ Jesus, certainly the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect life and he's ascended into heaven after that resurrection from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. But he is with us by the Holy Spirit. And God dwells with us now. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But as we gather as the people of God, we can be assured that we shall dwell with God forever as God dwells with us. We partake in part, but we long for that fullness to come We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit, but we long for the time when there is no more sin and sorrow and suffering. 
And thankfully, there is that promise of resurrection that awaits the people of God. And again, we cannot miss the fact that Genesis 23 is on the heels of Genesis 22. And why did Abraham, why was Abraham so sure as he went up to offer up his son? As Hebrews 11 says, he knew that God could raise him from the dead. He believed that God would raise him from the dead. And we must believe and know that Christ has been raised from the dead and God will raise us from the dead as well. And we shall dwell with him forever. And the comforting thing to remember is though we die and though we deal with death, Though we do dwell now, but we still wander, the comforting thing is we shall dwell with God forever, and we shall dwell with the people of God forever because of Christ Jesus, because of the gospel, because of his living, dying, and rising again. We dwell with God in part now, and we long to dwell with him forever. That is the comfort that I think Genesis 23 provides for the people of God, that Christ has purchased for us a home and Christ is going to lead us home. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your promises and that they remain true. Thank you that Christ is that high priest who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that your new covenant promises shall remain forever. And so help us to cling to that as we walk this world. Help us to cling to that as we deal with sadness and sorrow and grief. Help us to cling to what you've said in your word. And we're thankful for what your word says. We're thankful for the scriptures and how they nourish and uplift and build us up. We're also thankful, O oh God, for your providence and your special providence for your people. How you are walking with us, how you are guiding us, and how you are guiding us to that celestial city. And we know that as we go towards that place more and more. And as we live in this fallen world more and more, we long for that time of heaven more and more. And so we pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes upon Christ. Help us to have that hope that you have purchased for us in Christ. And we pray that you give your people comfort and strength as we navigate this fallen present world and still have to deal with sin and misery and death. But thank you that you are God. Thank you that you are God most high. Thank you that you're the God who is faithful and all your words, all the words that you've spoken shall come to pass. So strengthen your people, give grace to your people, give aid to your people, we pray. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.